Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and as we head toward the new year and start pondering those New Year's resolutions, we're going to spend the next hour talking about hopes, wishes, desires, and fancies with a show we're calling Dreams. We've plumbed the Metro Connection archives and plucked out a bunch of stories about Washingtonians pursuing their passions, like a group of young dreamers striving for immigration reform. We are American in our hearts, but on paper it doesn't say so. And a scientist on a rather particular flight of fancy. I tried to grind up feathers, and it's really, really difficult to do. Plus, we'll pedal around town with a woman who made a life-altering decision after witnessing an environmental nightmare. You know, I just came to think that whatever price we're paying for this product, it's just too high of a cost. But first, we'll hear about a native Washingtonian who had big dreams for D.C., in the years following the Civil War. His name was Alexander Roby Shepard, and he directed the Board of Public Works during Washington's territorial government period from 1871 to 1874. Back in February of this year, I headed to 14th and E Streets Northwest. That's where you'll find a statue of Shepard. And I met up with Carolyn Crouch. She owns the walking tour company Washington Walks. And as Carolyn told me, though Shepard is often viewed as a controversial figure, he definitely did his darndest to make his D.C. dreams a reality. He was instrumental in allowing the city to flourish after the Civil War as a city that finally had sewage under the ground in nice pipes, water flowing to people's homes, paved, graded streets. He created a massive tree canopy in Washington, D.C. How many trees did he, did he plant? 64,000 trees oh. under his time as the head of the public works of Washington, D.C. Didn't they also call him the czar of the public works? They called him, they might have, but his name that stuck was Boss, Boss Shepherd, as in Boss Tweed, frankly, of Tammany Hall in New York City, because there were allegations of mismanagement of funds, misappropriation of funds, cronyism. Nothing was ever legally proven that he did anything illegal. But I think that's what made the name Boss Shepherd attached to his reputation during his time, not only as the head of the Department of Public Works here, but then for one year he was the territorial governor, over about nine months, the territorial governor of the District of Columbia. Why only nine months? Well, two things happened. He was removed from that position and the territorial government was dissolved by the Congress. The uh, overspending of his budget, which was extravagant overspending, and sort of these rumors that kept chasing him about wheeling and dealing that might not have been above board caused the Congress just to lose confidence in the leadership. And that was the end of home rule in Washington, D.C. for 100 years. It didn't come back until the 1970s. And what became of Boss Shepard? Did he hang his head in shame and walk away with his tail between his legs? He was not that type of person. (laughs) Sadly for him, there was a depression in 1873, and he had to file bankruptcy, I think, in 1876. So he had to figure out what his second act was going to be. He decides to take a chance on silver mining, moves his family to the Chihuahua state in Mexico, reopens an abandoned silver mine, doesn't make a big success of it. 
it doesn't recoup his original fortune that he made here in Washington because he'd also early on had invested in real estate here at a time when nobody was investing in real estate. So he wasn't able to recoup that. Spent the last 22 years of his life living in Mexico. That's where he died. But you know what? He's buried in the Rock Creek Cemetery right in his hometown. And now he has this statue here on on 14th and E, but I understand this is not the original home of this statue. Well, this actually is very close to the original home of the statue. It was placed here in 1909. So in 1909, people are wanting to pay tribute to him, this man who did so much for the look, the infrastructure, the built environment of their city. And this statue stood here for many decades. Then it was moved when the Federal Triangle Project occurred, not far from here in this vicinity, but then in the 1970s, it was removed from this area and it had this rather inauspicious home on Shepherd Street Southwest, which is right by the Blue Plains Water Treatment Facility. And that's where his statue stayed for a few decades. And it seems that his reputation as someone who mishandled money, maybe didn't manage things very well, maybe did indulge in cronyism, that dominated a lot of discussions about Alexander Shepard. Then there was a group of Washingtonians who had just about enough of that because they realized that that may be true, but the contributions that he made to Washington could not go unsung and that his statue needed to be back here as a reminder of the important role he had in really creating a Washington, D.C. that was worthy to be called nation's capital. So this organization called the Association of Oldest Inhabitants started a campaign to get this statue back here, and by 2005, it was re-erected on the site. A few years later, funding was acquired to have it restored, to cleaned and shined up nicely. Lighting was added, so at night when you drive by, you can see him. And they put on their website the nicest encapsulation about Boss Shepherd. You know, all the story about him is there. But certainly you can read their account of his life in Washington and see that he really gave a lot to our city controversial person, but one who really deserves to be remembered and I think in many people's minds honored and thanked for what he did. Carolyn Crouch is the owner and founder of Washington Walks. For more on Alexander Shepard and to find that AOI website Carolyn mentioned, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We'll zip back to the present now and turn to some young people who've been dreaming on a national level, an international one even, in a way. They want an overhaul of the nation's immigration system. Jacob Benston met up with these advocates earlier this year and brought us their story. Raymond Jose came to Maryland from the Philippines 13 years ago when he was just nine years old. I found out about my immigration status my senior year of high school. His hard work at school was paying off. He'd gotten into college and he found out he'd been offered three scholarships. From Penn State, University of Maryland, and Stevenson University, uh, I came home to tell my parents the great news. But his parents had news for him as well. 
His mom broke down in tears. She said in our native language of Tagalog, um, she said, Anak pagbigyan mo ako, which means, my son, please forgive me. And I asked her, why are you asking for forgiveness? This is a happy moment. That's when she started to explain to me that we had overstayed our tourist visas. In other words, he was undocumented. He still is. I could be sent home any time. Young, ambitious, and educated, people like Raymond Jose have become de facto spokespeople for the nation's 11 million undocumented immigrants. We are American in our hearts, but on paper it doesn't say so. For years, they've been pushing Congress to pass the DREAM Act. It would allow young people like Jose to become citizens. But now, these so-called dreamers have expanded their activism. They're central players in the push for comprehensive immigration reform on Capitol Hill. That's where I met Jose recently. He was on a break during a busy day of meetings. Today, um, I'm going on legislative visits, trying to gauge whether we can get swing votes. The DREAM Act has failed in Congress again and again, but the DREAMers have managed to reframe the immigration debate, according to Elizabeth Keyes, who directs the Immigrant Rights Law Clinic at the University of Baltimore. They really opened and shifted the conversation um, out of that stalemate that we were in for years, since 2007. She says DREAMers moved the debate from being strictly about legality to being more about American identity. The DREAMers just interrupted and said, we're not in that conversation. We're in a different conversation. Many local DREAMers cut their activist teeth fighting for the Maryland DREAM Act, which voters approved last year. It gives undocumented immigrants in-state tuition. We went out to the streets. We marched. We rallied. I caught up with Claudia Quinones on her high school graduation day, still dressed up with her graduation cap. Quinones came here from Bolivia with her mother when she was 11. This past summer, she got interested in politics when she started looking at colleges and realized her immigration status was going to get in the way. At rallies last year, she spoke publicly about being undocumented for the first time. I felt as if a weight was being lifted from my shoulders. It was a relief to speak openly and to meet other kids who were in the same boat. I never thought that there were many other children like me suffering in the shadows. My name is Giancarla Rojas. I'm 19 years old. I've been in this country for six years. In Virginia, Giancarla Rojas first spoke publicly about her immigration status this past spring. It's a big change from five years ago, the last time Congress seriously tackled immigration reform. Back then, Rojas says immigration officials were trying to deport her and her younger sister. Their parents sent the kids into hiding with an aunt in Maryland. For three months, we couldn't go out at all. And then after that, I was just really traumatized, and I didn't want to speak because they said, don't say anything, just don't talk, just go to school, come back to home. Now, even as these young people go public, many in the older generations are still reluctant. Raymond Jose got into trouble with his parents when he was featured in a local Asian newspaper. My family was on the front page of it, the picture of my family. And uh, I didn't tell my parents about it. They just asked for a family picture. His parents found a copy of the paper at a Chinese restaurant. They were like, what are you doing? Like, this is a picture of us. And it, like, you know, clearly states that we are undocumented on a piece of paper. Like, you know, and they tried to tell me to stop doing it. These days, he says his parents are uneasily okay with his activism. But the Dreamers have been so successful, it's led to a sort of strange situation. The immigration reform bill senators are considering includes a fast track for Dreamers like Jose to get citizenship in as little as five years. For other immigrants, like their parents, it would take more than 10 years. They say that we came to the country not on our own fault, uh, that we were brought here at a young age by our parents. But what they don't see is that our parents were trying to better our futures trying to give us an opportunity that they didn't have. 
and they did it through the means that they they had. Even though the prospects for passing immigration reform this year are dwindling, whatever happens, Jose says he's found a new calling in political activism. I'm Jacob Fenston. Time for a break, but when we get back... Ever been stuck in traffic and dreamed of ditching your car? I never anticipated the payoff in, like, mood regulation. (laughs) We'll meet a woman who did just that right here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're dipping into the Metro Connection archives and bringing you stories about all the hopers and wishers out there with a show we're calling Dreams. Our next story, though, was actually inspired by a nightmare. It could turn out to be the worst environmental disaster in more than 20 years. A new government estimate puts the flow rate between 1.5 million to over 2.5 million gallons of We cannot rest, and we will not rest until BP permanently seals the wellhead. The 2010 oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico sparked rage and sadness across the globe. But for one local resident, it also sparked some serious determination to go car-free. Her name is Margaret Wohler, and back in July, environment reporter Jonathan Wilson brought us her story. Margaret Wohler's aim wasn't to become that crazy bike lady. I think the quickest way to get people turned off to whatever it is you you embrace is to just talk about it too much. (laughs) It's like, oh, God, no, I don't want to have that happen. In fact, she says she's always regarded her decision to dump driving for pedaling as a personal challenge and not a political statement even if it was a choice inspired by the highest-profile environmental disaster in recent memory. You know, like everybody else, I just sort of did what was convenient, and I just drove without thinking. Um, but then when that blew up, just seeing the oil billowing out like smoke from that you know, pipe-like thing on the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico, you know, I just felt so anxious seeing that night after night and, and just feeling like, ah, you know, would somebody please just shut that thing off? Wooler says the images of wildlife drenched in oil sent her over the edge, leading her to a realization about her consumption of that king of all petroleum products, gasoline. Push had come to shove, really. I just felt like It's one of these products that you just can't hardly justify buying anymore. Fitness-wise, Wohler was further along than many of us would have been. She's been a distance runner for most of her life. But quickly, she learned that being in biking shape was pretty different than being in running shape. I remember particularly the hills being tough. You know, great, walking the bike, it's raining out, you know, you get a flat tire. It's just like, ugh. Wohler, who works as a teaching naturalist at Huntley Meadows Park in Fairfax County, also had to get used to carrying everything she needed for the day in a small backpack. I think for a lot of us, if you drive the car a lot during the day, it becomes sort of an extension of your purse. (laughs) You start hauling around stuff that you don't need half the time, but it's convenient. You've got all these things. Well, I can't do that because I would accumulate too much stuff and it would be too heavy. So it has forced me to be really organized, which has been a pretty great thing overall. 
It's around lunchtime on a Monday, Wohler's day off. She's biking to the grocery store, a short ride from her home in Del Rey. It's raining out, but braving the elements on the bike is just something Wohler has learned to accept. Even snow doesn't keep her off the pedals most of the time. Right now, she's wearing a paper-thin rain jacket, shorts, and a bike helmet, of course. On her feet, flip-flops. This is about a mile or so to the grocery store. It's like no big deal. All she has inside her backpack is a bike lock, but that will be different on the way home. As she reaches Old Town Alexandria, she's vigilant about using hand signals to communicate with drivers. The main thing I'm still a little worried about is like the random drunk guy or um, texting, like uh, drivers that text. Inside the store, she heads to the refrigerated meat section and grabs a couple of packs of tofu. Got two vegetarian kids. So we hit the tofurkey pretty hard. The shopping trip doesn't last long, but Wohler's backpack is filled to the brim as she heads back out to the bike rack outside the store. We got cheese, a pineapple, a bottle of wine, some tofu, some cartons of egg whites. Let's see, spinach, tortillas, a couple of canned goods, five pounds of apples. We did all right. We did okay today. Despite the full backpack, the short ride home is even easier than the trip out, in part because the rain has stopped. Wohler says making grocery runs with the bike instead of a car forces her to make daily trips so she can fit everything on her back. But while she may be buying her food in smaller chunks, she's certainly not eating less. I do ride between 150 and 200 miles a week on the bike, so all of that effort is going into extra plates of food. So a lot of people are kind of jealous, like, oh, wow, I wish I could eat like that. Wohler is quick to tell you how switching from driving to biking has changed her life for the better. But she'll readily admit that living in bike-friendly Del Rey made her decision relatively easy. And she says having older children, one's 20 and the other's 17 now, helped as well. I think it would be much more difficult with younger kids that you really are tied into a lifestyle that requires a lot more time on the road and a lot more carpooling. But now that my kids are older and more independent, it's just more social embarrassment on their part. (laughs) But Wohler says ultimately her children just want her to be happy. And while her initial decision sprung from a mix of environmental concern and a desire for a new physical challenge, she says it's made her happier on a daily basis than she could have ever imagined. I never anticipated the payoff in, like, mood regulation. (laughs) I mean, I'm so happy all the time. I just feel like I'm in a great mood. I'm never, like, keyed up or, you know, the thinking like, oh, great, you know, it's four o'clock, I'm going to be stuck in traffic, I had wanted to go to the gym, and now I can't do that. It's like, I'm done. I don't have any of that. She's saving money. She can eat whatever she wants, doesn't have to go to the gym to stay in shape, and she's happy all the time. Sounds pretty good, right? So what's stopping the rest of us from putting the bike pedal to the metal? Oh, yeah, we're all just worried about saving our children from social embarrassment. Right. That's it. I'm Jonathan Wilson. This story was informed by sources in the Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for you to share your experiences with us and for us to reach out for input on topics we're covering. You can learn more at metroconnection.org slash PIN. So you know the Emily Dickinson poem where she writes that hope is the thing with feathers? Well, the man we'll meet next takes that statement to a whole new level. His name is Dr. Walter Schmidt, and he's a U.S. Department of Agriculture research chemist. 
Back in January, Emily Berman visited his lab in Beltsville, Maryland. The first thing to know about feathers is that they're very, very strong, eight times stronger than wood. And if you try to tear them up using your bare hands, like really went crazy on a bag of feathers, you wouldn't get very far. And you can actually take feathers and put them in liquid nitrogen and take a hammer to it. Nothing happens. <laughs> and so I said, whoa, you should be able to make something from this. I've just arrived in Dr. Walter Schmidt's office when he reaches into his desk drawer and pulls out a foot-long quill pen. Do you actually write with that? <laughs> Schmidt holds it upright and runs his fingers along the fibers. Feathers, he explains, are made from the protein keratin. It's the same protein that forms our skin, nails, and hair. And, he says, it has a lot of economic value. If you figure two and a half billion pounds of feathers produced each year... If their value is comparable to polypropylene, which is like 66 cents a pound. Polypropylene is a type of plastic. That's about like $2 billion worth of natural resources that are not being harvested. Technically, the feathers are being harvested. They're bought up by companies that make dog and cat food, sometimes livestock feed as well. You know when it says the food includes animal byproducts? That can mean feathers. This is banned in Europe, but not here in the U.S., and while these feathers are not going to waste, Schmidt says, we could be using them in a much smarter way. I ask, how? And Schmidt nods quietly, puts on his jacket, and tells me to follow him to the lab. The lab is in a separate building a half mile away, surrounded by roaming cows. There's a chicken of the month calendar on the wall, right above a huge bag of feathers. Step one? Schmidt says, is to grab some of the feathers, clean them, and chop them up. If you put feathers in a food processor, all that happens is they spin around. They spin around! <laughs> so, he says, you have to put them in a metal contraption called a ball mill. They're just like big marbles of heavy steel. And you put the feathers in here. The balls clang together inside steel chambers, grinding the feathers down into tiny pieces. And about 15 minutes later, you have something that looks like light gray baking flour. Okay, I'm going to touch it. Oh, it feels like weird. It feels very yeah. soft. That powder is dumped into a standing mixer, probably a lot like the one you have in your kitchen, where it's combined with glycerin. It looks a little bit like honey, except for it's like hotter. <laughs> The liquid is mixed in with a bit of plastic polymer and then cooled into long pieces that look like spaghetti. The spaghetti is cut up into pellets, and when Schmidt's ready to make the final product, he reheats them, pipes them into a mold, and there he has a flower pot, a feather flower pot. But if you can make anything out of these feathers, why flower pots? I asked Mark Tafoe, head of research for the Horticultural Research Institute. HRI is an association that's working with the USDA to get these flower pots on shelves. Right now, he says, the horticulture industry is somewhat hypocritical. We're supposed to be a green industry, but we have a lot of plastic pots. Flower pots are usually made from cheap plastic, Tafoe says, and thrown away to avoid cross-contamination between plant species. Biodegradable pots made out of a natural waste product could be a great way to cut back on plastic waste. Plus, Schmidt chimes in, over time, the keratin in the pots will be eaten up by microbes in the soil, effectively acting as a fertilizer. The microbes see it and say, mmm, protein, and they eat it up. 
While shopping their pots around, Tafoe and Schmidt have found other potential uses for keratin products. They could make building materials, fishing equipment, fertilizer pellets. We really think that there's an opportunity for BBs. Yeah, for BB guns. Millions of pounds of those are sold each year, and they're metal. Instead of the spent shells laying all over the ground, they're something to buy the grades. There's still no commercial partner who's come in to take this idea to the big time. Schmidt says he's confident this idea is too good to be ignored. There's a big, bright future ahead, he says, and it's all made out of feathers. I'm Emily Berman. You can find pictures of Dr. Schmidt's feather flower pots on our website, metroconnection.org. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Cottage City, Maryland, and McLean Hamlet, Virginia. My name is Patricia Gross, and I live in Cottage City, Maryland. Cottage City is located between the boundaries of the CSX Railroad track and Bladensburg Road from Eastern Avenue at the district line to the bridge just before the Anacostia River. In Cottage City, people would see mostly cottage-style houses. They were prefabricated houses bought from Sears Roebuck in the late 1900s. President Ulysses S. Grant stayed at a summer retreat known as Friendship House here. That building no longer exists, but it is now an apartment on 38th Avenue and Parkwood Street. Not like most of the other surrounding towns, Cottage City has a commission form of government as opposed to the mayoral form of government. We do not have a mayor. The city is governed by five commissioners. Cottage City is a quiet neighborhood. I love the tree-lined streets. The people are very friendly. I'm Alan Holmer. I live in uh, McLean Hamlet, uh, and uh, I'm 63 years old. McLean Hamlet's in uh, the northern Virginia suburbs. If you kind of think the intersection of 495 and the Dulles Toll Road, we're right about there. We're within five minutes of uh, Tyson's Corner, and we're going to be within about a one-mile walk or bike ride to two different metro stops on the new Silver Line uh, once it becomes operational. All of the streets are named uh, after some connection with Shakespeare. Uh, For example, I live on Falstaff Court, which is just off of Falstaff Road. Uh, And there's uh, Macbeth Street and Burnham Wood and Elsinore, Dunsinane, uh, and on and on. The other interesting aspects of the history, you know, there were 10 different builders that came in all with different kind of architects. So there's uh, many different types of homes here. They also planted at the time 3,500 trees. So as you go around or you look out my, my backyard window right now, thousands of huge trees all over the place here. If I had to cite one thing, it's just the wonderful sense of community 
that people have here as a part of McLean Hamlet, uh, either with a local neighborhood pool or being so close to the schools. People really are eager to collaborate to make our neighborhood as good and neighborly as it can possibly be. We heard from Patricia Gross in Cottage City and Ellen Homer in McLean Hamlet. If you think your neighborhood should be part of door-to-door, send an email to metro at wamu.org or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Up next... Abracadabra and Alakazam, a magician makes his wish come true. I had done a lot of work on cruise ships and corporate things. and After some point, it occurred to us that it might be nice to have folks come to us instead. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're revisiting some of our favorite stories about dreamers. And this next dreamer we'll meet appeared on the program back in October on our Connections show. And as we pointed out that week, there are so many ways we can connect with one another. You know, we can send a note, we can cast a glance, we can reach out and touch someone, or... You ready, boss? In the case of this guy... <laughs> yep. Here we go. We can rap. This is Darius McCall, a.k.a. Prince D, laying down tracks for his third hip-hop album with sound engineer Chris Raffetto. This song is called See Me With My Dogs. Prince D moved to D.C. about 10 years ago from his native Alabama. He's a fan of Jay-Z, Kanye West, and the University of Alabama football team. And... You can hear me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool, cool. And I've been hearing it on. He's deaf. You want that, like, messed up effect at all? Uh-huh. Do you want that, like, a messed up effect at all? I'm sorry? Listen to this. Tell me if you, what you think. All right. So, I mean, your hearing seems to be pretty good. I mean, if you can still hear some. I'm reading lips right now. But my right ear is uh, I'm profound. And left ear is uh, severe, which means I can hear a little better than, well, a lot better than uh, the right ear. And as Prince D told me after his recording session, that's why he's been marketing himself as the first deaf rapper. His upcoming album is called First Deaf Rapper, Volume 3. There's other rappers, like deaf rappers, who might have gotten signed to a record deal, but they weren't recording artists. They had somebody rapping for them, and they would sign it. But Prince D, who, by the way, is a graduate of Gallaudet University, does both. When I go on stage, I still want to, like, at least show that I'm still involved in my culture. Even though 95% of my friends are deaf, but I go on stage and I wouldn't expect too much of a uh, deaf crowd if they haven't heard about the show. So I go on the mic and I do my thing. But the problem is, is that I'm just like any other person. So I said, all right, let me do this in sign language. But I can't, and then try to sign and, and sign, and it just be so complicated. So instead, I rap in a more simple way, easy to follow, but at the same time, I can sign it better and make a, a huger impact. So how is it different performing for a hearing audience versus hearing-impaired audience? Uh, it's completely different. 
we, you know, for the, the hearing impaired audience, they do not care about the vocals. I think what they want to see is just a visual art. They, they want to see a lot of movement. It's almost as if it has to be theatrical for them so, so they can understand it. And that's the big difference. But deaf people do need to have, like, you know, like heavier bass. So that way they can at least, uh, you know, feel like they're hearing it almost. I noticed that there's uh, like other artists, uh, like deaf artists, they would use like TV screens, like projectors or whatever, and have the lyrics up. But that's to me, I feel like a, a distraction because they're like looking at the lyrics and then they're supposed to be looking at the signing. And that's why I'm trying to be very simple now because I don't want to have to rely on you know, the projectors. I just want to just be able to sign it and be very clear because I have like a sign coach and he says he'd just be really big and just play towards the audience then people would get it. So I want to go back and uh, talk about your history in music. So when did you start doing music? When I was growing up, I liked music that my grandmother was playing like all the old songs of people singing, but I couldn't understand them. So I kind of distanced myself from them. And then I got on to rap like when I was nine because... My older cousin had a song from Eazy-E. Like, I mean, these my cousins were like a whole lot older than me, so they were playing like some old stuff. And Eazy-E said, cruising down my streets in my 6'4". And then when he said that, it was easy to catch. And, then like, and the beats were banging, too. And it's like, oh, I like rap because I can understand it. But I didn't start, like, getting serious, serious in uh, recording until, like, maybe after I finished high school. And I was in a deaf high school, so... I felt embarrassed to say anything about music to them because I didn't think that was something deaf people could do. But then when I graduated, I just started getting a little more confident. You know, I was out on my own now. It's like I was making my own decisions. When I came to school at Gallaudet and I ended up having, like, summer jobs and to be able to, like, have some money to go to a studio. And I started recording and recording. But as I was recording... I was still embarrassed. I couldn't nail what it was. Like, I would hear everybody else on the radio and everyone, like, yeah, but I'm not hot like that. I'm like, yeah, it's something's missing. And then after a while, a hearing person actually was very honest and open about it. And he said, you need to be more clear. You're not enunciating right. You know, you got to have some more clarity in your lyrics, you know. I was like, ah, that's why I was too ashamed to show my stuff to other people. And then I started working on that. As I got better, I felt really confident and like, I really can do this now. Like, that's what was missing. Your enunciation is amazing. I'm, I'm taking standard stage speech right now. Put it like this, if I take this hearing aid off right now, give me two, three months. Without this hearing aid, you'll start... Like I got, like I got pudding in my mouth or something, I'm trying to talk. I, that will come back. Yeah, it'll come back faster than lightning, you know. So just now, when you were recording with Chris, when he was talking to you, were you hearing him? Were you watching his lips? I mean, he was through the glass. But No, I turned the hearing aid up, up to before the feedback starts to sound out. And that helps with my enunciation, too. I used to rap without them. And so you can hear all the, I won't be able to, all the diphthongs, whatever. Diphthongs. Yeah, diphthongs <laughs> or something my teacher used to say. So, yeah, so I was listening to him, like, and he was loud enough. I actually always set the standard. I said, hey, man, I'm hearing impaired. So, he, he, you know, there's some consciousness in his head that just turns on and said, oh, yeah, I need to speak a little louder for him. So that helps. 
All right, so you put out your first album, Southern Comfort, in 2005, and then first Def Rapper Volume 1 in 2011, and then first Def Rapper Volume 2 just this year. First Def Rapper Volume 3 is coming up. You said, you know, originally you were you were calling yourself the first Def Rapper, but now you've been saying you want to be known more as just a great rapper. Can you talk about that? I just want everybody to understand that I just want uh, to be appreciated for the music. Not because I'm deaf. I mean, it's a story within itself. But Tamika Catchings plays for um, which WNBA team? She's deaf, but nobody treated her like she was. A lot of times people kind of forgot about it. But uh, I just want to be treated as an equal. And uh, most importantly, I just want you guys to have fun with whatever I show you. And um, there's so many people that want to do this kind of thing that are hearing impaired, but they think that it cannot be done. They think that the odds are against them. It's none. It's what you make of it. That was Darius McCall, a.k.a. Prince D. His fourth album, The First Deaf Rapper, Volume 3, is due out this winter. For more on Prince D and to watch one of his videos, visit our website, HetroConnection.org. We'll stay in the world of entertainment for our next story as we turn from music to the dramatic arts. Enrollment at two acting schools in D.C. has gone way up over the past few years, despite a rather sluggish economy. Lauren Landau went backstage and into the classrooms to look at this trend and the characters driving it. It's a Thursday night at the Theater Lab School of the Dramatic Arts in Northwest D.C., Students in George Grant's Intro to Acting class are preparing to rehearse lines. It's their last session of the semester. Good, so let us just uh, re-establish what we're doing. What do you want him to do? I want him to help me be normal. Uh, that's, super, that's the super objective. That was Felicia Gurley, a Baltimore resident. She says she's not an actress, but wanted to give acting classes a try. Well, I wanted to start acting for confidence sake. I thought it would just be a cool thing to do, and... It would just help me to say the things that I may be afraid to say. Theater Lab co-founders and executive directors Deb Gottesman and Buzz Morrow say that many of their students are like Felicia. They're looking to build real-life skills, not necessarily pursue a career in acting. They want to get more comfortable talking in front of a group. They want to break out of their cubicle and do something creative. So we have lawyers and teachers and nurses and all kinds of folks who come in here wanting to expand their sense of self. Since 2008, despite the economic downturn, Theater Lab has seen a 58% increase in enrollment. I think that what happened is that people started to realize that this is a perfect time to build skills, that if they were in between jobs, this was a way to build some skills that would help them get another job. Theater Lab offers a class called Anyone Can Act, and that's part of the school's central philosophy. Buzz says that he and Deb don't buy into the so-called talent myth that acting is a skill people are either born with or without. You know, if you were taking a pottery class, would you say, well, I don't really think that I should be doing this? I mean, you would assume that you could be taught the principles of how to make that pot, and it's very much the same thing with acting. Deb estimates that about 75% of Theater Lab students come because they want to augment their life skills in some way. And even though their job is to teach people how to act, Buzz says it doesn't bother him at all that most of his students don't want to be actors. I love the fact that most of them are not trying to be professional actors because it it allows us to open them up to something that they really hadn't considered before. He says more than half of their students leave wanting to work as actors or be involved in community theater. 
Theater Lab ignited that spark in one student, Montgomery County resident Taylor Payne, who says she was a shy, homeschooled teenager when her mother convinced her to audition for Theater Lab's production of Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. She's like, come on, it doesn't hurt to do anything. So I was like, okay. So I went and I gave the worst audition of my life. But, <laughs> you know, I was there on time, I was prompt, and I said, you know, I just want to give this a try. Just let me try. And so I ended up getting into the ensemble. And she never looked back. Since then, I haven't really gone two or three months without being in a show. I just always wanted to be in it, and I always wanted to learn more and have another character. Okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? Taylor is now 21 and has begun her studies at the National Conservatory of Dramatic Arts, where she is currently in her third semester. Like Theater Lab, the conservatory has also seen a spike in enrollment, particularly among young people. Nan Ficka is the school's director. We've had sort of a rush of, of the younger set um, in the last two or three years, it's, it's been unusual. It's kind of dropping our numbers down in terms of the average age in the classroom. She thinks it's because the current economic climate is pushing parents to consider alternatives to a traditional four-year liberal arts education. And at $4,000 a semester, the National Conservatory of Dramatic Arts costs a whole lot less than a four-year college education. Mom and dads are saying, huh, you know, I can, we can stay local, we can do the drama school, you know, there's always time to get the bachelor's degree. It's not like it has to happen right now. Nan says the conservatory teaches students through the Konstantin Stanislavski system, which relies on objective tactic. In other words, students such as Taylor Payne have to determine what their character wants and how they're going to get it. That's what Stanislavski did, was taking us from a very presentational type of acting that we had before realism to something that's supposed to look like something was happening in the moment for real on stage. Taylor says the conservatory has taught her a reliable method, and it starts with the script. Now I can come into the first rehearsal off book with all these choices already made and choices that I can back up because I have this method. She says that she didn't choose acting. It chose her. And even though it's a difficult career path, she's happy every day for that struggle. I really feel that once I graduate from the conservatory, I will always be able to use the skills that I have been taught here. Always. I'm Lauren Landau. You can find more about the National Conservatory of Dramatic Arts and the Theater Lab, including information on upcoming performances and how you can enroll in classes, on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll stay on stage now as we go on the coast. That's Brian Russo's regular series from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. And today, Brian brings us a brand new piece on a magician who's performed on stages all over the world. Rich Block has been hooked on magic ever since he first worked in a magic shop at the age of seven. When he isn't asking people to pick a card, any card, Block is sorting out labor disputes as an attorney in D.C. But in addition to arbitrating and abracadabraing, Block recently fulfilled yet another dream owning his own theater. Brian recently met up with Block at Dickens Parlor Theater, where Block showed off his special brand of magic, including a card trick or two. This is called, I don't know why actually, but it's called a Hindu shuffle. This is an overhand shuffle. And this is the very difficult backwards overhand shuffle. This theater, for anyone who's who's not been here before, is 
it, it's a hidden gem of this area. It is completely fascinating. Every little idiosyncrasy has been thought of. It is the definition of charming. Tell me about the journey in not only finding this place in Millville, Delaware, but putting it all together. Thank you. We're, we feel the same way about it. We, we're absolutely in love with this whole endeavor. Uh, it was a kind of a long-held goal of mine to do something like this. I'd been traveling for many years as a, a traveling magician. Uh, you know, with, what kind of magician is not a traveling magician? And I had done a lot of work on cruise ships and corporate things and you know, getting on the airplane and heading toward Vegas or wherever else uh, I was able to pick up the phone. And after some point, uh, it occurred to us that it might be nice, I say us, my wife and myself, that it might be nice to have folks come to us instead. Let's talk a little bit about your personal journey into the world of magic. You're an arbitrator in Washington, but your history with, with magic and being a magician started at a very early age, and, and it actually... That story includes uh, the great Abbott and Costello. Tell me that story. I was, uh, I was three years old, and my father had uh, passed away. My mom took me out to the West Coast uh, just for a change of pace and scenery. Uh, we had relatives out there. And one day, um, they took me to the Abbott and Costello radio show uh, somewhere in Hollywood. Uh, during the show, for reasons way beyond me, um, uh, Lou Costello came down into the audience looking for someone to bring up onto the stage, and he, he chose me, this little three-year-old kid. Uh, I really don't remember what I did up there, um, but, I, but after the show, he came to my mother and made her an offer. She said, uh, he said that uh, they wanted to keep me in Hollywood and send me to the, the, the various schools out there for actors, and they would underwrite the whole experience, and they, apparently it was a pretty uh, extraordinary offer. And uh, my mom thought it over for about a minute or two and flatly rejected it and whisked me out of there to get me away from those show people and take me back east. Right. So that was my, my brush with early stardom. What was the moment that you remember where you thought, this is something that I have to do? That was a, a more definable moment. It happened when I was seven. And uh, my mother was on the road as a traveling sales lady, and I was living with my uh, aunt and uncle a great deal of the time. And they were pretty laissez-faire about just letting me go out and wander and have a good time, and I did. This was in uh, East Orange, New Jersey. And I went over, and there was a magic shop at the end of uh, the street. And I walked in, and there was a guy there doing miracles. And I was absolutely smitten. And I, I walked up to him, I watched him, I just stood there uh, in awe. And I said to him, uh, I, I want to work here. You need to hire me. And he said, uh, what's your experience? And I responded something like, experience, I'm seven. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, boy, I really wanted to be there, and so I, I just lied to him. I said, uh, "Look, I, I don't have any experience, but my father is a great magician, and uh, I had seen a, a, a magician the year before in in uh, first grade, and I didn't remember him, but I remembered his name for some reason. The name was Ted Collins, 
And I said to this guy, uh, my father is Ted Collins. And he was very impressed. And he said, well, if your dad is Ted Collins, you can work here. Come in and after school and on the weekends, and I'll teach you the art. And I was thrilled. And as I walked out of the shop, I turned to him. I said, I, I, I don't know your name. He said, it's Ted Collins. It's, it's a true story. <laughs> and I worked there for eight or nine years. And it was, it was uh, heaven. And I was uh, just in an idyllic surrounding. That was magician Rich Block speaking with Coastal Reporter Brian Russo. If you want to witness Block's wizardry for yourself, he's performing at Dickens Parlor Theater on December 10th. We have more information on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Brian Russo, Jonathan Wilson, and Lauren Landau. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Our Editorial Assistant is Lauren Landau. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. And we bid a bittersweet farewell today to our intern, Stephen Yenzer. Not only has he helped with everything from transcribing tape to assembling moving boxes, but he's filed a handful of pretty spectacular stories for the show. We're pretty sure we haven't heard the last from this rising star of the radio world, so stay tuned. In the meantime, thanks as always to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on MetroConnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online anytime. Just go to the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you our annual show on traditions. We'll head back to the good old and not-so-good old days of Woodward and Lothrop. We'll visit a church with a musical tradition that's full of surprises, and we'll meet some folks whose holiday tradition includes baking a few dozen cookies. 2,500 dozen, to be exact. We just keep these ovens moving the whole time. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.